Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5 featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-host, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, what is your favorite Brad Dura for all? Uh, you cannot say worm tug because that's basically cheating. Okay, well, I'm going to say it anyway because I have a goddamn Tolkien podcast. Fair. So I feel like I am obligated to pick the Tolkien role. But also, he's really good in that role. But you yes, would never is. connect that this guy and Wormtongue are the same person. And and I'm going to go with Lieutenant Suter, who is the serial killer Betazoid in Star Trek Voyager. I, I do like him. He dies a noble death, too. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. We're gonna, we're, we'll, we'll go into this at the end of the episode. But, like, this is Brad. That, man, like, that Brad- man's typecast. He is. He also, like, he just plays a ton of stuff. The fact that he's also Peter DeVries from Dune, like, this guy's range is bonkers. We'll get there. We'll get there. I'm sorry. I'm I'm jumping the queue a little bit. All right. Um, so um, if you have not guessed from our discussion of the prominent guest star in this episode, uh, today we are going to be covering one episode. That is season three, episode four. Um, our last episode broke up our coverage a little bit because we wanted to give this episode its own space to breathe and that is going to be passing through gethsemane anna take us away all right and this this one was written by jms and directed by adam nimoy who is leonard nimoy's son so that's exciting so hello and welcome to one of the roughly three episodes of the show that makes me cry every time i watch it literally every time The opening sequence is a chess match between Sheridan and Brother Theo, the leader of B5's resident Trappist monks, uh, who we last saw in Conviction. Or Convictions? One of those. Ivanova is watching and bantering with another monk, a Brother Edward, played by Brad Dourif. The scene also frames a theological discussion between the two. Sheridan describes his beliefs as a little of everything and eclectic, and Theo warmly needles him in response calling him uh, unfocused. At the same time, Ivanova offers to make a wager with Edward, who refuses on the grounds that if you're going to sin, you might as well make it a big one. Theo wins the chess match, just as Ivanova receives a calm that Kasha's ship is arriving and she needs to head to Bay 13. Once Ivanova departs, Theo encourages Edward to show Sheridan something, a small crystal figurine that he carved. Sheridan expresses genuine appreciation, and Edward offers it to him as a gift once it's complete, saying that by giving away the figurines rather than selling them, he is blessed first in the making and then in the giving. Meanwhile, in Bay 13, we get the return of the eye-searing pixel art squid ship, (laughs) Uh, but it is not Kosh who steps off. It's Lita Alexander. 
In a debrief with the B5 command staff, Lita explains that she had been searching for a way to reach the Vorlant homeworld since she first touched Kasha's mind. Eventually, she hired a ship to take her to the border of Vorlant space, but the ship captain spooked after they received no response. In exchange for the last of her resources, Lita was given a life pod where she continued to wait while beaming out a telepathic signal. The Vorlons rescued her just as her air was about to give out and brought her to their homeworld. She's forbidden from speaking about her time there, but reveals that we'll be seeing more of her this season since she's now working for Kosh. Due to her recent physical and mental stress, Franklin gives her a full medical exam, uh, does not flirt with her, surprisingly, uh, and he finds that not only is she in perfect health, several minor chronic conditions are now cured. He doesn't flirt with her because he sees her as a specimen to examine. True, true. I mean, one has to wonder if he's like, who knows what the Vorlons have done with her? Maybe she'll sprout tentacles. Wait, no, that would actually be like probably impetus. So, I mean, here's the thing. Franklin spent his formative years working his way across the galaxy, using his services as a doctor to pay his way. Uh, and hitchhiking. Which, hitchhiking, which... As we all know, is slang for uh, sowing his wild oats across the galaxy, fucking everything <laughs> that moves. So uh, I'm sure that tentacles would not disturb him. I just think he sees, you know, like a medical research paper in 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 his uh, in in his head with like you know Vorlon manipulated human woman and like dollar signs, <laughs> thinking about all the ladies he can impress with with a. You know, a, a paper published in Scientific American or Scientific Earth Dome. <laughs> yeah. We have a brief interlude um, where we get some exposition from Garibaldi, reminding the viewers about the death of personality punishment that Earth doles out as an alternative to the death penalty. Garibaldi is just as awful as we'd expect about it and questions the whole thing, not for the obvious reasons of it not actually being any more ethical than the death penalty, but because he's super into spacing people. Back with Brother Edward, we catch up with him as he concludes negotiations for work with monks. As he wraps up, a black rose falls out of his bag, uh, but he didn't remember putting it there. When he returns to his quarters, he sees a message written in blood on the wall. Death walks among you. However, when Garibaldi arrives on the scene to investigate, the message is gone. Garibaldi promises to look into it and to move Edward to temporary new quarters for the night. The next day, pursuing his theological work, Edward meets with Delenn and Lanier in order to learn about Minbari beliefs. We, we ourselves learn more about the Minbari conception of souls, specifically that they are non-localized, essentially projections onto the body, uh, like light projected onto a wall and represent facets of the universe trying to understand itself. Cross-reference, star stuff. When Delenn asks Edward to share the aspect of his faith that means the most to him emotionally, he responds by telling the story of Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane and saying that he's always wondered whether he himself would have had the courage to stay. Their discussion concluded, Edward heads back to his quarters and literally runs into a Centauri in Brown Sector. Immediately after, he hears a cry and runs to help. As he runs, he sees the same message on the wall of the corridor, hears voices, and begins to see images of a dead woman with a black rose in her mouth. He apparently makes it back to his quarters okay in the end, 
though, since Theo checks in on him there, noting that Edward missed morning prayers. They discuss what Edward saw, and after Theo leaves, Edward begins a computer search, cross-referencing the images and phrases from his visions. Brother Theo, disturbed by Edward's visions and concerned for him, goes to see Sheridan and explains the situation. He fears that there was something dark in Edward's past that he does not remember, and asks Sheridan to help, specifically to find the truth before Edward does. Meanwhile, Garibaldi checks in on Edward, saying that his team didn't find blood on the wall, but are looking for other compounds. Edward tells him not to bother, uh, saying that Garibaldi won't find a guilty conscience in a lab report, and merely asks for help finding his bag, which was lost during his run through the corridors. Unfortunately, Edward does indeed track down the information before Sheridan. He was once Charles Dexter, a serial killer on an Earth colony known by the moniker the Black Rose Killer. Dexter himself had been sentenced to death of personality. Sheridan additionally learns that Edward had been presumed dead after the facility he was held at burned down, but must have escaped and found his way to the monastery following the implanted personality's drive to help others. With this information in hand, Theo finds Edward, uh, presumably somewhere in Down Below, but the two are physically separated by bars. Theo pleads with Edward to return with him, but Edward refuses, choosing to wait for the justice that he believes is coming for him. Garibaldi, meanwhile, has tracked down more than just a guilty conscience. He found Edward's bag, discovered that the PA system was tampered with to play the voices that Edward heard, and the, that the walls indeed were painted not with blood, but with a compound designed to look like blood and then disappear. He and Sheridan conclude that the mind wipe was broken on purpose and that the Centauri Edward ran into was probably involved. They track down the Centauri telepath, who refuses to cooperate and gloats that the Psychor rules prohibit a human telepath from getting the information from him. But it just so happens that they have a shiny new telepath who's not affiliated with Psychor anymore. They throw a bag over his head and Lita extracts the information they need. A location. Security, Sheridan, and Theo scramble to reach the location, but are too late. They find Edward hanging in a crucifix position, badly beaten and barely conscious. Sheridan, Garibaldi, and Theo get him down and order a medical team to the scene, while security leaves to find the culprit. Zach Allen finds him nearly immediately. The man confesses, and Zach sends him to holding after narrowly preventing Sheridan from attacking him. Sheridan returns to Edward's side. Edward tells Theo that he finally knows that he did have the courage to wait in the garden. As Edward dies, Theo prays for God to receive Brother Edward and invokes the authority of the Apostolic See to forgive Edward for all of his sins. In the epilogue, Theo meets with Sheridan and gives him the unfinished crystal figurine. Theo also introduces the newest member of their order, a Brother Malcolm. Sheridan instantly recognizes Malcolm as Edward's killer, who had been sentenced to death of personality himself. Theo scolds him for his negative reaction, saying that forgiveness is a difficult thing, but something always to strive for. And Sheridan takes a breath and wishes Malcolm luck in his training, hopefully breaking the cycle of anger that killed Edward. Oofa doofa. And that's the episode. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the episode. Uh, let's talk about the stuff that's not brother Theo, like the main plot line first, maybe? And then get the heavy stuff done after, or do you want to do it the other way around? Let's let's go with the light stuff first. Okay, yeah. I would like to talk about two things jumped out at me specifically. Well, a lot jumped out, but 
two things I want to call out right at the top. One, uh, Garibaldi watches executions like other members of the toxic, toxically masculine watch sports, which I think is perfectly in line with his personality and also exceedingly gross and made me hate him even more, which I didn't think was possible. The scene where he's watching it and Delenn is in the office and she's just like visibly grossed out by his enthusiasm for the trial and then his disappointment that it's death of personality and she's just like yeah. horrified by corporal punishment as a concept and then also by like the death of personality and then when he's like, I wish we could just hang him or electric chair him or electric bleachers and she's just like slowly backing away. Just like, yeah. Jesus. Some some great acting from Miri Froben there. Yeah. She has like two lines in that whole scene, but she gets across a whole lot of disgust with Garibaldi there. And she and one of those lines is really good. After Garibaldi yeah. goes on his diatribe about how he's an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth kind of guy, which, I mean, that's a little on the nose for the episode, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> she... she gives a quip that's kind of along the lines of Gandhi, but saying that the system will leave the whole world blind and toothless. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then Garibaldi, not, not like he doesn't, he doesn't get it at all and just says, well, just the bad guys. Yeah. And just doesn't get it. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that really jumped out at me was so far on this show, the command staff has been pretty on board with the idea that telepaths are bad. Like, we've been pretty sure they were okay <laughs> with Talia. But even then, like, they never really trusted Talia. Like, Talia was never one of their crew. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Although, is, is it telepaths or is it psychor? No, it's definitely telepaths. Like, the two, the fact that the two have been the same thing is kind of part of it. But my point is that they, their complaint with telepaths is that they don't, they're, you know, they don't follow the rules. They invade people's minds, like whatever, whatever. The second they have a telepath on their side <laughs> that works for them, what is the first thing they have Lee to do? They yeah. black bag a guy and they violate his personal rights. <laughs> I'm yep. just saying. I, I do like how it's like, they don't really need anything to, like, prove to, uh, Lita's loyalty, other than it's like, you just step off that funky, uh, that, that, that weird trash man ship, um, with your, with your pretty good jacket, honestly. I like, I like Lita's Yeah, the I weird like neck Lita's fastener outfit. jacket. Yeah, I yep. love that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, good on you, you funky lesbian. And, uh, <laughs> she... <laughs> <laughs> That's my headcanon, by the way. I'm just rolling with that. Um, and, like, yeah, and they show up and it's like, they're honestly just like, listen, if Kosh says she's okay. Uh. Well, and she she's also the one who, like, she concretely helped them, you know, avoid all getting, you know, court-martialed pretty recently. So yeah. that's a point in her favor, too. Yeah. But then she gets, like... She proves her, her utility, like, immediately by being willing to just basically does the psychic equivalent of taking this guy out back while no one's looking and beating the information out of him. <laughs> I mean, let's let's put it into context. Yeah. That's what she does. Yeah. She takes this guy into, a, into, like, a holding cell and beats him until he talks, just with her mind. 
Yep. Which I'm is, just saying, by the way, not something a P5 should be able to do. Yeah. No, 100%. This guy broke a a, a mind wipe. Yeah. And that's that's no small potatoes. And yeah. Lita just beat the beat the tar out of him uh, without eye contact. So my point is just that the staff are hypocrites who are perfectly willing to violate uh, telepathic ethics when it's convenient for them. <laughs> yeah. There's there's that um Londo Lita interaction, which I didn't I didn't include in my summary, because it's it's a pretty small interaction, but it does have utility here. Yeah. Yeah. He threatens to send her to the Psychor if she doesn't like tell him about the Vorlon homeworld. Yeah, and and she basically says, Well, if I'm not part of Psychor, then I can fuck you up, dude. Yeah. And and it gave, it's it has utility because it like is telling us she's not constrained by the core rules and we're going to use that later in the episode. Yeah. Yeah, and his look, he's like so offended that that she would be like thre- that she would take his threats personally enough to threaten him back. It's such a Londo moment where he's like, "Jesus, didn't don't take it personally. I'm just making threats." You don't have to like get offended by it. <laughs> and and then, you know, she threatens him with like nightmares for the rest of his life and he's just like I mean, who doesn't have vivid nightmares every night? <laughs> right. I do sort Chumps. of kind of really just like how just sort of like off the bat with like Lita's reintroduction of the show and like her becoming like, "Hey, I'm going to be sticking around now." That like she gets a, vi- I think it's the I think it's JMS learning from his mistakes, and like she is a much she she is an actor, not a reactor in this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is what Talia was for two full seasons. Yeah, there's a interesting piece that I also feel like there's a fair amount of utility in that she comments that you know she's working for Kosh now, so she'll be around a bunch, but she'll also be off station a lot. You know, running Kosh's errands. Or whatever, which, you know, part of the Talia problem narratively is like, there are so many situations where it's like, well, they could have just used Talia and solved the entire episode's plot Mm -hmm. in three minutes. Um, But, you know, having the possibility of like, Lita's just not around right now. Yeah. No, she's, her introduction is really elegantly done here. Um, It helps that she's a really good actress. I think she plays the character really, really well. Like she's got a good amount of just sort of like. She has, she has a certain energy to her. Yeah. Yeah. She's got a, a real no fucks energy and she real, really gets in there and <laughs> is, is willing to, to pick fights and, and go with it. And I like that. So I really, I really like her introduction and it really sets her up to be, a part of the crew in a way that doesn't feel forced. Yeah. Also, also, I have to briefly talk about the telepath hairstyle. Yeah. Because Lita has essentially the exact same hairstyle that Tali has started with. <laughs> just red instead of blonde. It's really funny to me that like the costumers are just like, this is the, this is the hairstyle that all telepaths have. It's the, canon. This is the introductory style until you can earn enough XP to 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 buy a, a cosmetic kit to upgrade. 
No, it's 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 involved in the gene. <laughs> so what it is is like you know how like Wolverine's hair always returns to like that natural state even if the hair has been burned off. I love that mm. that's actually true. Like I mean, this is not you goofing. Yeah, this is not you goofing on like the X Men. Like he's when he gets vaporized and comes back like naked as a babe. His hair is in that idiotic <laughs> points. Like that's just yeah. what Wolverine does. That's one of his so mutant powers. He's got healing and bone claws and fucks like a rabbit, apparently, and has pointy hair. Yeah, and so it's just like, and, and that's just, that's part of the side gene. Yep. Yep. It's, the, it's that specific, like, you know, it's like the, the corner part where it's like swept like to the side and back. When you put that note in the outline, I thought you were talking about the Centauris. And I was like, interesting. I can't say no, I noticed no, no. anything about the Centauri's hair, but no, no, I'm no. interested to hear what, what Anna has to say about the the size of this Centauri's crest. Which is very large, by the way. It was larger than I expected. That's what she said. Um, you could even make the, the, the case that Duster has that haircut. It's just too short. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I just Googled this to just, like, see. I'm I'm right, aren't I? Like, it's a very similar hairstyle. And it's like, it's not just a 90s thing. Uh, you also left out the most what the fuckery part of this episode. Which is? At the very end, uh, Lita checks in with Kosh at the end. And it oh, pans yeah. over from her breather mask and Kosh's helmet, like just sitting on a shelf. And Kosh's encounter suit is open and there's like gas and light coming out of it and she's just Lita's just standing there with fucking gills and she's just like barfing light into Kasha's encounter suit yeah and I remember I I would like to yeah I would like to point out that that so at least the CGI is the exact same effect as when Sheridan like barfed the extra dimensional alien back into the time rift yeah and that's why I called it out at the time it's the exact same effect And I remember when I watched this show for the first time, I remember being transparently freaked out at the time when I watched this, like when it aired on TV, because it's just like, you know, a a normal, relatively normal episode. And then, you know, you're, I was a kid. I was not really emotionally open to the impact of this episode. I was like, serial killer is weird. Um, and then it just pans over and you're just like barfing light out of your face and gills. And it's just like, I was not prepared for uh, weird body horror and alien space barf uh, <laughs> at the end of this episode. And it was a real good stinger there right at the end. That one was crazy. It was cool. Uh, but yeah, it does look exactly like that. Uh, when Sheridan... It makes me wonder exactly what it is that Sheridan... Uh, Barf back into that rift. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to like, I'm going to like slowly gear us towards like the towards the heavier content here. But uh, let's talk about Minbari a little bit. Because there is interesting point where there, I like, we get the whole discussion about what their soul and belief system is, Mm -hmm. but we also get some teases about Valen. Yeah. 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 
Oh, uh, Lanier. I love Lanier is so good. I love how excited Lanier is to talk about Valen. I really regret that Lanier never got to have that conversation with Brother Edward yeah. about Valen. That makes yeah. me sad for for Lanier. But yeah, I I do think it's interesting. Like so, so the way that that scene is lit uh, is a very it's it's darker than like your usual hallway scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a, I, I think it's a nice, like, deliberate choice because it makes it look like that Lanier, Delenn, and Brother Edward have spent way too long talking about this. Yeah. Yeah, it really, it really has the energy of, like, they've all stayed up until, like, three in the morning. Yeah, agreed. You know, chatting about the stuff. And, and as, I would totally get that based on, like, that they have such a good discussion earlier you know, when we see when we see them all chatting, yeah, um, in Delenn's quarters, yeah, I do have theological beef with this, though. I don't quite understand how their whole Minbari souls migrating to human b- bodies thing jives with this f- statement about what Minbari souls are. I don't know how that works. I'm a little curious about that, but if. Souls are just like the like pieces of the universe projected into bodies, embodied into living things. Why are what what are Minbari souls versus? Yeah, it's and like yeah, and their their philosophy like it's been previously stated that they believe that there's a finite number of Minbari souls. So when their souls are born into human bodies, like they're reduced. So I'm having trouble. Like, but that's me. Yeah, that's the philosophy and religion major. Trying to <laughs> reconcile uh, two pieces of science fiction theology that clearly were not, you know, considered at the same time. Yeah, it's it's a. I like this piece of Mimbari. Oh yeah, soul no, this is super cool. I really think it's a good better idea. Better than the sharing souls with humans, though. I don't think they're unreconcilable. I just think that, like, yeah. on surface value, they don't. Uh, they don't make a ton of sense. Like they need like another episode to to to, to connect them. But yeah, on facts per- currently presented, they don't really work together. You have to like make up some stuff to get. Yeah, yeah. Is this our first mention of Valen as a Minbari, not born of Minbari? Oh yeah, absolutely. That makes sense given where given where we are and what we're. Yeah, yeah it's it's a teaser teaser for mm-hmm. War Without End. Yeah, we're gonna get there. God, that episode is going to be chaos. Um, <laughs> I'm so glad you've watched that episode finally, because you notice that we haven't had a headphones moment since. No, we've had one. Yeah, I like we're gonna we're gonna dance around it, obviously, because in case you are in case you are keeping with the kayfabe of the show, <laughs> um, you know we're not gonna we'll get into that once we get there. Um, yeah, but it definitely is one of the biggest spoiler moments in the show so or you know in the first no i just think in the show in general it's one of the biggest moments so it's it's the it's i think the one biggest world building piece yeah Mm -hmm. it's the biggest world building reveal i think there's a couple there's a couple that are close but it's like one of the biggest it's just one of the biggest it's like a top five reveal in the shows in the show's run for sure yeah Maybe top three, depending on how much you like Sinclair. I think we have to get into the heavy stuff now. I think we've run out of like bits to yeah goof about. So I, this episode is, I think it's 
it's a tr- it's a tragedy, but it's a very different one from like say the ironic tragedy we get with Jakar in season two. It, it's a very it's a very bottle episode mm-hmm. um, sort of feel almost. It's very self contained. Actually, originally, from what I understood by looking into things, um, is that this was originally slated to be a season two episode. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, and what went on was that it was originally supposed to be two monks. Uh, who were coming to the station to scout ahead and like determine Babylon 5's fitness for their project. It's so much better once now uh, the way that it happened, it's so much better because we have Theo as an established character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and apparently what happened was that somebody mentioned the, I, somebody mentioned the idea of doing a story with somebody who was mind wiped on the, Babylon or on the Usenet forums. Hmm. And because JMS read it, he had to find that fan and get him to sign a waiver. Basically uh, say, please don't sue me. Yeah. Which apparently held it up a year. Wow. Um, wild. So this was originally supposed to be a season two episode, which is, yeah, wild. I, I it's, it's, it's the dangers of a creator hanging out on the, on the forum while they make it. Yeah. Which is, I mean, yeah, I mean it's funny because it's like I like with like the the current X Men community, like all of the authors who are very active on Twitter are basically like, I will block you if you send like plot suggestions. Yeah, yeah, which is like honestly what you have to do if you're working with uh, something that's actively producing like that. Yeah. Actually, JMS on Twitter was recently like needled by a bunch of people who were pushing that similar boundary and was just like, I'm blocking all of you fuckers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which it, it's, it's like, a, it's, you have to do. I do think this is a really good continuation. I'll say of Babylon fives. I want to say celebration and highlighting of the positive aspects of religion. Mm-hmm. We really only have, I think one episode that I can think of in the th- in the two seasons and change we have where a religious practice as view is portrayed as harmful. That'd be believers, right? Yeah, we don't have to talk the about episode that. that doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, it, it's like that. I, that's the only one that we we're real like that where that exists in the air of it, um, which I think is interesting. But it's it, it's like well, especially considering that JMS is himself like agno- agnostic to atheist. Yeah. In a pretty yeah. ag- aggressive way too. Yeah, I was reading that in the JMS speaks and that's honestly like he's got props from me on being an atheist and writing about faith in such a like well-rounded nuanced way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, especially with Catholicism, which is very easy to portray as the horny evil religion. <laughs> I God knows fantasy has done it forever. Um, but yeah. I mean, it's portraying both the I both from the portrayal of Catholicism uh, in a very enlightened and I, I'd say like it's not an accurate depiction of like how the Catholic church is today, I would say, or was in 1995, but it's rather 
aspirational. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a nice aspiration, I think. I think there are some things that this episode pulls off that are really hard to do uh, in regards to like portraying religion on television. I don't think prayer is an easy thing to shoot. Yeah. But the final scene where uh, Brother Theo administers the last rites to Edward is... Oh, fuck that um, scene. It's so good. I mean, it, it's I, I'm two for two on crying for it. It is... It's one of the best scenes in the show. Yeah. Um, like, I'm I'm fairly confident with that. Like, with saying that. And the way that he's, you know, trying to reassure Edward that he is forgiven of all of his sins, even the ones that he can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, and that's a lot of that is down to the actor who plays Theo. He's so good. He's so good. And he, he delivers all of that with just such sensitivity and gravitas. And you feel all of his loss in that scene. When The scene where he's confronting Edward through the grate. And you can just feel his desperation and his sorrow that he can't stop Edward from doing this thing. And then when he, when he, when he finally is, is giving him the last rites... You you just feel that sorrow and that that sadness that and that that sense of like that he like he let Edward down. You really feel all of that. I, it's very good to me. Yeah. yeah, and the ways that Theo tries to appeal to Edward in the back half of the episode. Yeah, he he doesn't ever try to say like this isn't your fault. This isn't like it's that wasn't you, but he specifically says that, like, even if you don't know what you've done, God knows and is willing to forgive you. That it's a very, I think it's a very, he, he knows you can easily fall into like from a writing perspective, you can easily fall into cliches in a scene like that. Yeah. Yeah. Where, you can say like, oh, no, it's all right. It's not your fault. But it's it's a very nuanced and thoughtful way to respond to it. Yeah. It's a deeper way of portraying that scene because it doesn't take the easy out. Like you were saying of like, oh, it wasn't your fault because it also, de- it also you know, they've pretty well established the character of Edward would not have accepted that answer. So it really demonstrates the closeness of these two individuals that he knows that that's not the answer that is going to satisfy Edward. Spiritually, he doesn't, he, 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 he knows that he's, he's hearing what Edward is saying, that he, he's fearful for this spiritual stain that he can't ask for forgiveness of. And he doesn't want to hear that it's not his fault. He wants to hear that he can be forgiven even if he can't remember. Like, that's what he's afraid of. And that Theo understands that even, you know, is listening through his panic to the part that is important to him really demonstrates a really good, uh, the relationship between these two men. I think that it's a really interesting um, way to... uh, So we're, we're getting payoff in this episode with the thing that's been kind of established before but glossed over which is the whole death of personality yeah thing mm-hmm. we're finally actually you know finally actually touching on that in a meaningful way um and i really like 
that this is such an unusual way to approach it, that there's so many ways that the show could have approached the whole the the whole concept um and approaching it from a faith perspective is wild um and the the approaching it from the implications on somebody's faith and beliefs um is a really interesting way to do it yeah agreed yeah i i think that there's a number of there's a number of ways you can work with that concept and i feel like the and it's one of those things where I feel like the easiest plot you can do there is where you have somebody who has death of the personality with the old personality coming back. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like, th- like the first time I watched it, that's what I was afraid of. Yeah. Um, because you like, you're expecting is like, is this nice man going to kill somebody? But, and, and instead it's a very different story. And I think I feel like I've I've seen a similar plot line using that the subdued personality or the wiped personality comes back and a horrible tragedy happens because of that. I I like I cannot place the specific show or episode, but I feel like I've seen this before. Mm. Yeah, it's I mean, I think I've seen it in multiple things at this point. Yeah. It's it's a fairly common trope, I think. You know, the the repressed memories come back and you fall into the old behavior patterns. Yeah. And and I feel like there's a vein of that something that Edward is afraid of. That, yeah. But we don't but we don't get that. Yeah, there's there's a there's a, it 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 bears a slight similarity to the Dax symbiote in DS9 where there's like a former host of the symbiote who was a killer. But like that that's I think the closest one I can think of. But instead of it being like a um a thriller where it's a deranged personality coming back, instead it's a tragedy of somebody being reminded what they've done. And the reason I think that this episode strikes so powerfully is that there is no evidence that Edward that any bit of Charles Dexter beyond the memories remains an Edward yeah or that there's any yeah. bit of him left and like the episode ends with him giving up and not resisting and accepting it and that makes it incredibly more powerful than anything else you could have done with it yeah because it's not even a, it's not even about the memories at that point it's it's about the moral implications of it he never gets he has like one flashback that's enough to get him to question and that's it. Mm-hmm. He never like questions his own identity. Like he has one telepath triggered memory flashback and that's it. Really what, what he grapples with are the moral implications. And that's what yeah. the, it's a moral tragedy. It's him questioning the, his responsibility for the sins he no longer remembers. That's like the the central moral axis that he's spinning on. And that's what drives him to not respond to Brother Theo and to seek, not seek out, but to allow himself to be sought out by uh, his attacker. And that's what's so sad about it is he, he makes this 
calculation, this decision that he owes it in some moral sense, he owes them this confrontation. There's also the the aspect that there's nothing that Theo could do to fix it. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. you know, in, in some other episode or show, we might have something of like, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll repress those memories again and you'll be fine. Yeah. That's not, nowhere is that even thought of as like, it's, that's not just on the menu. It's not in the same ballpark. Yeah. That's not the problem. That's the menu. Yeah. That's not, yeah, that's not the problem that, that wouldn't fix the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, the problem is Edward is a good man. That's the problem. Edward is a good man who feels a moral responsibility to stay in the garden and wait through the night and see through the what he knows is coming. And he, there's obviously there's some question as to whether that was a, a necessary choice, but for him, he he viewed it as the only moral choice. And yep, that's what makes it so sad is. It was his own goodness that put him there and that the, these people couldn't see that, that they were, they only saw the person he had been. They couldn't see that it was the goodness. Well, that one guy, it seemed like the other people had lost their taste for it, but there was one maniac. Yeah. It seems like that there had been like, it was, ju- it was, I mean, from what I gathered just from watching the episode, it was that. Like, they were planning to go through with it, but, I mean, it looks like, like, most of the people there sort of realized that, like, they, I mean, it's a combination of realizing that the person that they wanted to hurt was no longer the person mm-hmm. who had hurt them um, and their loved ones. And, I mean, part of it was also, like, if you see somebody who they might have, you know, when they saw who this was realized there's nothing to be gained from it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause this isn't even a person who really remembers it. Yeah. Like this isn't a person who's going to fight back or give you conflict so that you can feel some sort of a catharsis. Yeah. I think that that's one of the most important parts of Edward choosing to stay for the confrontation is that he that sort of allowed all the, you know, everybody except that one guy to, you know, come to their senses and walk away. Yeah, he gives them their moment of, yeah, he gives gives that, them the opportunity to escape the the cycle. That if, if he had run, they would have chased. Yeah. But he gave them the space to rethink their actions. Yeah. Um. The thing that the thing that really is the the thing for this episode that really hits me as well is that final scene with Sheridan and Theo mm. and Malcolm. Yeah, it's great acting on Box Letner. He's on Box so Letner's angry part. in that first and realization. Yeah, he's he's you can see the like anger and hatred on his face and you know brother malcolm sees it too and is taken aback yeah theo looks like he's he's practically holding sheridan back and theo scolds him yeah um theo's like check yourself 
man. Yeah. Be, be the adult here. It, again, with great acting on Box Hunter's part that like Sheridan kind of like takes that breath and, you know, rethinks the situation and offers moves it. past it. Offers to, his hand. Yeah. You know, yeah. Offers hand and wish the guy the best of luck in his future. The thing that strikes me about that scene is there's only one time I can remember in the season plus we've had of Sheridan where he reacts that viscerally to something. His wife's killer. Yeah, with Morden. Yep. Um, yep. And I I find it really... I mean, you get... I think you can get complete buy-in through that episode, but for the tragedies that Sheridan's had to deal with in a year of commanding and governing Babylon 5, uh, this one death is the one thing that gets him to react as violently as his wife's killer. I, I it, It's like, I think that Sheridan and uh, Edward have one scene, two scenes together. Yeah, but it's implied like, that they are more but yeah, familiar. But it, it's, but I mean, even in the work they do in that, in like that opening scene. Yeah. The opening scene lays so much groundwork. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's Sheridan recognizes and appreciates Edward's gentleness. Sheridan is responding to the, n- n- the, the senselessness of the death. Mm-hmm. And I think Sheridan's seen a lot of fucked up stuff in the last year, but a lot of been, a lot of it's been at the distance. I was thinking about this uh, for the next episode. I was thinking about how much death there's been on the station. And it, there's been a, a, a lot of it, but it's not as though Sheridan has been doing a lot of like, these aren't action heroes. These are commanders. He, and He hasn't had to cut down somebody who's been crucified before. Yeah, that's that's a really like demented, visceral thing to see. And not only the see that that imagery is just like it's intense, and, that, and and I have to say that 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 imagery right there, and the way that like Edward's body hangs, et cetera, really sets the tone for the rest of that scene too. Yeah, and so I think it it, it definitely is selling the idea that this is something that was very affecting to Sheridan. So it's not necessarily yeah. that it's brother Edward himself, though I definitely think he clearly was someone that Sheridan was fond of. I think it was that this is a, a good man who did everything right and was killed in a senseless way, in front, more or less in front of Sheridan, and he couldn't get there in yeah. time. And I think it was just the, the senselessness and, and seeing it up, up close that has Sheridan personally uh, you know hurt i think we'll we'll talk about this some more i think when we hit dust to dust but i think this episode and that one are paired pretty nicely in terms of showing the results of violence without showing the violence Mm -hmm. that we don't we don't see them you know beating torturing etc edward we see the results of that. Yeah. And it's more than it's sufficient. Very, it's very graphic. 
Like, yeah. you know, you look at you look at the scene where they're cutting him down and you realize that that the hook the hook ain't coming from anywhere other than skin. Yeah. It's very like it's not gory, but it uh it's graphic. Yeah. Agreed. I, I think that one thing that it's like that I that I kept coming back to in this is that the death of personality and how it's not even an improvement or it's a it's a sideways step compared to like our own ideas of justice now it's cheaper i think it probably is the only improvement is that it's cheaper because you don't have to keep him in a jail Yeah. yeah you had the you had one of you had a really good description of it in the notes which is that it's a utilitarian death penalty that you can then you know give somebody the death of personality you got a servile personality now implanted in them and they can go and do community service yeah you know yeah picking up roadkill from the side of the road or whatever yeah for the rest of their lives and not and not even know why like yeah but not it- know why they're stuck in this servile position with no hopes or dreams or possibilities yeah and it's it's fucked up it's super gross to the personality that they create and it doesn't uh yeah it's yeah it's a continuation of like our modern justice system um which is it's just instead of a carceral state you have a one that has I've gotten to this before how um, Babylon 5's depiction of how authoritarian governments reflects the um, <laughs> the willingness of modern states to adopt technology for dubious reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And we'll, in, in the future, we will have stuff to say about the modern surveillance state. <laughs> um, um, the the idea of like, oh, we have these telepaths and we need to control them. Well, we will create an arm of our government that is about enforcing that in a in the most brutal way possible. And from this, it's well, how can we reduce prisons and get killers off the streets and see that they are punished? We will create this fiction that we can create a a. a basically a slave uh prisoner for life it's like how can i do how can i do rehabilitative justice in the most awful authoritative authoritarian way possible how can i pervert the idea idea of rehabilitation as far as it will go make them slaves and like it yeah which i mean is one of those things of like you know it's if you had to write babylon 5 today it's almost a little funny. You like the way that Earth Force is and operates. It's hard to see Earth making it out of the twenty first century, yeah. <laughs> um, because it's just it's it is a planet where nothing has changed. Yeah, only only the technology and the means. Mm-hmm. And I think this is like it, it, it's something where in science fiction we often want to either see it be. I mean, we want to see it be aspirational sometimes, but it, it, it's 
the the death personality and how it's depicted here just really shows that like earth does not change um and that is why it is so easy in the span of a couple years and how we will get to in our coming weeks here uh for earth to end up as uh an authoritarian state yeah that's weird that could never happen in reality <laughs> we'll get to that next episode well it's it's interesting as well um a lot of the authoritarian earth stuff that we've seen with the with the exception of the psychor um a lot of it has been kind of specific to you know president clark is bad right yeah this whole system ain't new they've been doing this for decades a century something like that mm-hmm. you know the the whole death of personality mind wipe thing is is nothing new it's not something that arose under clark's leadership um yeah it's background noise to the human society right that it's it's um reflecting a darker undercurrent that goes you know that that underlies um even the the stuff that's like the current politics in EarthGov. yeah yeah i think it reflects the idea that where earth is at this moment in its history that it's still fundamentally broken it has not hit it's it's still earth as we know it it's still humans as we know them we are not like on our way to being minbari or anything like that yeah no it is 1995 there are the 1995 neoliberal united states trans like transposed 250 years in the future yeah which I mean is I it's good you it's it's telling a good story here and it's uh frighteningly predictive in certain ways. Yep. Yeah. Some some of these are. I mean, we'll we'll get to this more with like some of the stuff with dust to dust in particular, but man, some of the stuff is so prescient. Like yeah. Uh. It's freaky how prescient this show can be at times. I mean, sometimes not so much, but sometimes it can be really, like, uncomfortably prescient. A lot of the times when I've rewatched it in the past, I've been like, wow, this is this is wildly unrealistically dystopian. And I guess I guess I got showed. Yeah, I feel like all science fiction is going to have to readjust its baselines after the last four years, because now we have to be like all dystopians and like cyberpunk in general had, has been writing for years about how in the grim future, corporations will own everything and authoritarian governments. And it's like, (laughs) now it's like, you know, we have a sociopath trying to make, you know, Oracle by TikTok, And, uh, we have corporations tracking the people that you know, uh, AWS, like everything, yeah. Amazon, yeah. the company that's the company you buy your uh, your your books and your lube and your uh, your kids' <laughs> t- uh, Christmas toys from, uh, also happens to transport like all your internet traffic. And Facebook knows that you sat next to someone at a wedding 
even though you weren't in any pictures with them and you're not connected with them through any social networks based on like the smudges on the photographer's lens. Like guys, we live in a fucking cyberpunk dystopia. It just doesn't look like one because you know, we have we our social have media. media well, cause the filters are all, are all better tinted than in all the cyberpunk movies we've seen. It doesn't look like Blade Runner. It looks like, you know, the social network, but we're living in the cyberpunk dystopia. It could do with more noodles. I don't know, man. I, I've lived in San Francisco. There's a lot of noodles. It's a lot of noodles. The, the 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 icing on that cake was really Trump and the realization that like, nope, nope, authoritarian governments were not just for places with, you know, other people. It's in America too. Like, yeah, it's not like we, you know, you can ignore a lot of things, but when you have an authoritarian orange in a wig... Like that crosses the line. You can no longer ignore the fact that your government is 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 authoritarian and broken, uh, unless you're one of the you know crazy people. Uh, so I think science fiction is going to have to like reckon with its timelines now, uh, and what yeah what authoritarian and broken futures look like, because we we live in most of them now. We've been there. They're going to have to figure out what the next one looks like. And and also, you know, along those lines, I think a lot of uh, sort of the medical science fiction is going to yeah. have to change a lot as well. Because, I mean, we, um, you and I both recalled with Confessions and Limitations um, that prior to 2020, we both thought that that was like completely implausible. Yeah. And woof were we wrong yeah yeah like that it seems so wild that anybody would respond to a threatening pandemic the way that the Markabs do is yeah. uh was bonkers Hoofa not so much anymore yeah. yeah the last 10 years have really upended a lot of uh a lot of american ideals about uh what does what a shit show looks like kind of i guess uh and what we're capable of so fun stuff happy times yeah. on that somber note <laughs> i i you know just to pull us back up to a little bit of thing god the return of of the kosh cgi up close ship like the the up close cgi <laughs> for kosh's ship is uh, okay you, you, I, I realized as we were starting to record this what it looks like you know what it looks like it looks like a cutscene from a mid '90s LucasArts video game. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, from, it's 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 like from Dark Forces, where yeah. you where you know before they had an idea of cutscenes, you had FMVs. Yeah, it looks like an FMV, uh, not even not even like a good one. It looks like a yeah. like a I don't even know off the top of my head one of LucasArts like '90s Lucas games. Dark Forces. Yeah, or Dark Forces, this is Dark Forces 2, Jedi Knight. Yeah, okay. Something like that. Like, it's it's a real dubious thing. And then they have t- uh, Lita come out of it. And it's it's like, you can see... Like, she's just on a sliding conveyor belt tour. Like, yeah, like, she's on a dolly. There's some guy a... with like a rope, like, pulling her away from the green screen. And her whole, her whole face is all muddy. And then it resolves. And you're just like, oh, guys, uh, you know... A plus for effort, but oof. I'm I'm sure like at least 
on a non-HD screen in 1996 or whatever, that probably was, like, a really good shot. I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't remember, but I don't know. (laughs) Obviously, what we need to do is we need to get the DVDs, we need to get a CRT television, and we need to do this as, like, an experiment. Yeah, maybe. That's what we need to do. That's what we'll do. Or what we really need to do is go back in time and, like, get some hot takes from first airings. That's what we really need. (laughs) God. I remember thinking that the show looked pretty good. I Yeah, I remember being impressed. I remember thinking that it made Star Trek look dumb, which is an opinion that has not held up. <laughs> uh, Star Trek's models look way better now. Yeah, I, I remember thinking that, like, you know, that it looked pretty good. And back when I was first watching it, I did have the understanding of, like, that this was CGI, which was... You know, having having the whole show rely so heavily on CGI with the computers at the time was wild compared to Star Trek, which was still using practical effects for yeah. most yeah. things. I think I remembered mostly about it was that it it felt more dynamic. Yeah. In Star Trek, Star yeah. Trek, even with TNG, for the most part, the effects in TNG are graceful glide past past the planet, the station yeah. Yeah. in front of Bajor, Voyager swings past an asteroid belt or into deep space like they were pretty Darmak and jalad at nagra yeah pretty grace pretty like static stuff and then you have babylon 5 where like in the opener you have like fucking star furies flying by and shit's blowing up and things are flipping around and and there's a lot of space battles yeah way more than trek yeah yeah I mean, that, that's that's like a genre thing, but that's but it's also like yeah, you can do that if you have full CGI thing. Yeah, um, it was a technology difference. I, yeah, but it also just leads to points where it's like sometimes if you need to do a simple shot, it just doesn't look as good. No, it doesn't. Yeah, and that's one yeah. of the side yeah. effects is that Trek's those simple gliding shots look fa- look great even today in almost any no matter what you what you scale the the shot to, you know. Like, I hate to be that person, but practical effects just age better. No, they do. It's, it's, they absolutely do. Really, there's no, yeah. there's no you denying. Can film them in 4K. Yeah, there's no <laughs> denying that they, the reason why those Trek shows were able to scale up so cleanly and, and look so great is that film scales up great. And those miniature shots, I mean, it almost doesn't even matter what resolution you watch a, a TNG episode in. Those shots of the Enterprise gliding by look great. You can't like any resolu- any resolution other than like the exact one those CGI shots were composited <laughs> for looks like your comp- looks like your TV screen is about to explode. Uh, spe- speaking of the look of the CGI, one of the things that really stands out with this episode is the cinematography. Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, um, John Flynn, who is the cinematographer for Babylon Five, does a fantastic work with this. Um, specifically with, I, I, I call it the nightmare sequence, Mm -hmm. uh, where Edward is under telepathic assault and there's stuff being piped in. He, he's getting memories pulled back in. There's, there's some, there's some long shots that are like going around corners, which are, um, not something you typically see in the show. Uh, the one that stands out to me, uh, is the shot where he's speaking with Theo and he's on the other side of that, like, grate 
and he's like lit from below mm. and from the side and it's just this like very eerie distorted look up to the face the way he comes into that shot too the way edward like comes yeah. out of the shadows and is then framed in the shot looks amazing and and i think that that shot is also playing with our expectations for the way that this the way that similar storylines roll out that he comes out you know yeah he comes out uh behind bars so he's physically physically separated from theo he's lit from underneath he's like coming out from the darkness and you're expecting him to be like edward's not here anymore it's me charlie um, and like make a grab for Theo through the bars, but that's not how the scene plays out. Yeah, I also want to talk about uh, audience expectations here. Um, so the actor that we have playing Brother Edward, uh, we talked a little bit about his extensive uh, IMDb page, uh, but Brad Dourif has played like every kind of serial killer from uh embodied in a toy doll to aliens to everything in between for fucking decades like he was the voice of chucky he was he still is the voice of chucky still is the voice of chucky he, like that's his last credit is the voice of chucky on the chucky tv show um he's played everything like all but that was like the thing he was best known for when this was coming out was playing serial killers. So I wonder to what degree, if you knew him, well, that and playing fucking um, Peter DeVries in Dune, who is also not a serial killer, but definitely a psychopath and a sociopath. So we'll give it to him. Uh, but I wonder to what degree, if you knew that, if you knew who Brad Dourif was, when you watch this episode, do you go in wondering like when does the psychopath part start like when does the serial killer stuff start or did they stunt cast him for that and then once this stuff starts to happen do you be like okay now yeah. he turns into a serial killer like i wonder it where audience expectation comes in here because i didn't know any of that so i never had that expectation but i bet there was a degree to which that played into the audience expectation at the time that it was airing, if you were a genre aware person. Yeah, that's that's definitely an interesting point. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I feel like the the first scene is so foundational mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. this episode. I mean, it's a very parsimonious episode. I would be hard pressed to think of any scene that doesn't have utility. Yeah. Uh, even the mm -hmm. scenes that seemingly don't have utility. It's super tight. Yeah. That first establishing uh the establishing scene where and he has great chemistry with Ivanova. I wish we'd had more Ivanova in this episode because the the way the two are like snarking at each other watching the chess match is fantastic. And that that line of, you know, I've I've always thought that, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna sin, you should go for one of the really big ones. Yeah. Yeah. And his delivery uh, that of that also line is playing with expectations. Yeah, and his delivery of that line low is so like childlike. Yeah, like again, but it's it's like it's it's messing with your expectations. It's very good. Yeah, like you don't you don't expect it. You expect that it's going to be like you know if you're if you're going to go for a sin, 
you know, you should go for one of the really big ones and, you know, die in a cake orgy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, um, or like... That's, that's the delivery on it. Yeah, or like, you know, or steal a piece of candy. Whoa. <laughs> I, I, so one thing that I do like in, or a little thing that I love in this episode is that um, Edward is in charge of negotiating with a businesswoman for like an odd job. It's basically data entry. Yeah. Edward compares it to the illumination of manuscripts. Yeah. And just like, which, which is, I, I think just funny of just like, Oh yeah, we've been doing stuff. We, you know, we've been, we've been doing busy work to pay the bill for a thousand years. <laughs> yeah. Um, Cause I mean, that's what those by like, like illuminated manuscripts were basically like they were sold to rich people in, in the middle ages. Um, and I just like, I thought it was a really just like neat little world building thing. of just like, yeah, you got to move with the times. Yeah. No, that's a really funny point though. It's, yeah, I mean, like the the new Mallory Monastery today are are primarily Coopers, I believe. But the, it's just it's a fun little thing of just like, yeah, even like apparently the Pope does not shill out for uh, rooms and down below. Yeah. But last thing I wanted to say is um, Theo Theo trying to convince um, Edward to sell the figurines has real strong um, millennial culture vibes. <laughs> yeah. Got to got to monetize that hobby. Yeah, I got I, I my my last comment on this episode is that I just really love Brother Theo, and I can't wait for Justin to see and the Rock cried out because he's so good in that episode. Oh, <laughs> I can't yeah. wait! It's so good. Every time we see Theo, he is a treasure. He's a joy, and also his facial hair is a treasure. Yeah, yeah, I. I aspire to have facial hair that, like, precisely good as Brother Theo. Uh, obviously, I'm uh, going a different direction, but his is on point, and I respect it. Zathras is pointing out that um, it also, Theo also has a very specific look that he, he looks um, kind, of, kind of like a tonsure, too. With the yeah. the bald dome, I could have gone for the tonsure. No. I definitely, definitely, definitely could have been a look I rocked. I mean, uh, I mean, like this episode has been pretty much all about, hey, I know that face, so we're not going to bother with it. Uh, this is just Brad Dourif appreciation yeah. hour. You know, uh, the the funny the funny thing was was that like the the week or, or at least a couple weeks before we did our initial watch of this episode was um the the annual lord of the rings rewatch nice <laughs> so brad durf was fresh in my mind that's good all right all right um so next time next time we are going to be covering we're going to be getting back into our uh our regular coverage um with two episodes uh we're going to be going back to two episodes and those are going to be episodes six and seven of season three dust to dust and exogenesis um one of those will be um one of those is good the other is is bad the other one is perfect (laughs) no the other one the other one is bad but has a himbo in it it has a lot of good marcus content we're gonna be i'm gonna be feasting so you've got that to look forward to audience until next time 
Be seeing ya. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license.